I now want to, so having talked then about state nationalism, I want to talk today about ethnic nationalism. So on the one hand, we looked at how nations can emerge from the top down through states, peasants into Frenchmen, state-directed <coughs> nation building, whereas today we're going to look at, the, at a different process, which is that of building nations, if you like, from the bottom up, or at the very least, from ethnic groups to nations. So it's a different route, whereas the nation, we said, partakes of some characteristics of the state, so territoriality, uh, politics or political aspirations, and some aspects of ethnic groups, myths and memories in particular. Uh, well, we're going to put those two together and we're going to look at how nations can be built from ethnic groups as distinct from nations that are built by states. So what is the ethnic route to nations as distinct from the state route? That's going to occupy us in today's lecture. Uh, and so we, we've already discussed the origin of ethnic groups, how, at least from some uh, conceptions, ethnic groups have existed uh, at all points since uh, the advent of written records around 6000 BC. And if you were at the talk that as Argat gave, he was talking about ancient Egypt, for example, ancient Greece, as examples of pre-modern ethnic groups and then moving forward to the examples of the Armenians and, and, and other groups, Chinese, and so on. But for Anthony Smith and the ethno-symbolists, they would argue, okay, yes, there were pre-modern ethnic groups. These are then transformed into nations by modernity. In some cases, this is, takes place where you already have a pre-existing state like France, which then transforms itself into a nation. But what happens in other cases where you don't necessarily have that pre-existing state? So that, too, breakaway secession is going to be uh, more prominent in today's lecture. Reunification is going to be more prominent in today's lecture than simply state nationalism. So we can begin then with the shock of the French Revolution and the state nationalism that it introduces. This model of the mass military, conscript army, not a mercenary army, uh, bureaucratization, uh, the idea of the people being sovereign, not the king. Sovereignty lying with the people. But with the French Revolution as well, you get this emphasis on the Enlightenment. France is going to export Enlightenment values to the rest of Europe, starting with places such as Germany, which at this time was broken up into a bunch of different states, such as Prussia and uh, Saxony and Bavaria and all of these little statelets, if you like. It was not a united uh, state in the same way as France. So this is going to concern, uh, in particular, minorities within empires or within existing states. And also, uh, and so state nationalism associated with the French model, the French Revolution, enlightenment. And this is the idea that Popular sovereignty is an enlightened idea. Uh, and for Leah Greenfeld in the readings, she associates uh, this first phase of nationalism, the French revolutionary phase of nationalism, <coughs> associated with state nationalism and nation building, uh, as linked to the French Enlightenment project and its universal values of uh, liberty, equality, fraternity. Uh, so these values and the notion of reason as being in the driver's seat rather than emotion 
for affect are linked together. Uh, and the modernization that the French Revolution brings, in some cases on the back of military occupation, as the French army proves a very effective fighting force, that conscript army defeats its rivals because it's a more effective model, military model. It's based on an appeal to patriotism rather than on the mercenary model that was still prevalent in the monarchies of Europe. Uh, and so that this mo French-driven modernization has a whole series of effects on continental Europe. First of all, it destabilizes the existing social order by saying, actually, the aristocratic order based on the divine right of kings and absolutism is now under threat by this new nation-state model whereby it appeals to people's patriotism in order to tax, appeals to people's patriotism in order to conscript into an army, uh, and that this is the new model. And that, that is going to cause a lot of upset in the social strata. First of all, the elite in the ancien regime, the, the monarchies, the aristocrats are going to be alienated from this model, but not only them, other, others in the societies that are facing the shock of the French Revolution are also upset. And for Greenfeld, it's these into particular strata within the old order in new societies such as the German states that are reacting to French Enlightenment. And this is where we get the origins of ethnic nationalism, is in the reaction against the Enlightenment, uh, which takes the form subsequently of Romanticism, a movement called Romanticism. And the Romantic movement is a re reaction and a response to the French, not only the French, but particularly the French Enlightenment. Uh, and so if we date the Enlightenment to the middle of the 18th century, moving to the latter part of the 18th century, the Romantic movement really just begins at the end of the 18th and into the early 19th century. So first of all, it's a literary and intellectual sensibility that is opposed to what it sees as the dry and arid emphasis on reason that is, is the emphasis in the Enlightenment and the, and the Enlightenment writers. So it's a rebellion against that emphasis on the higher faculties of reason. Uh, and instead, what the Romantic movement seeks to do is to revive the emotions uh, instead of humans and their reason, it's nature and it's raw energy. Uh, these are some of the themes. And you can see this in literature, in art, um, in architecture, in a whole series of ways the new romantic sensibility takes hold. And it's not, it's not the case. As you shouldn't imagine that the Enlightenment is French and everywhere else embraces romanticism. It's not like that. Basically, romanticism then is important in France and in England and in, in Spain and elsewhere. It's a new sensibility, a new intellectual paradigm that comes in in the end of the 18th, early 19th century. But it, but it affects the nature of nationalism quite profoundly. So with the Romantic movement, we see, for example, uh, a vogue instead of neoclassical architecture, which UCL is an example of with the, with the uh, columns, the Greek columns, it's Greco-Roman influence, you see an emphasis on Gothic or medieval European uh, styles. So that's where you see it architecturally. In terms of art, uh, less, less emphasis on proportion and symmetry, more an emphasis upon expression of emotions and so on. So that's, that's kind of the general um, 
general sensibility. You see it in literature as well, um, where the literature, again, is emphasizing themes of, of the emotions and so on, such as Victor Hugo, Notre Dame de Paris. Uh, part of Romanticism, then, is to celebrate the cause of underdogs and, and minority peoples that are seen as backward or rustics by, from the Enlightenment point of view, uh, you want to move to cities, to higher learning, away from agrarian values and, and, uh, and aristocratic values to the new society based upon reason. Whereas uh, for the Romantics, it's, it's an attempt to say actually there's a lot of value in those peasant populations uh, in the old medieval world uh, that's been lost with the Enlightenment and we want to try and and recover that. And that becomes even more urgent with industrial industrialization. So this is a search then for uh, something pure and authentic in the agrarian and medieval order. Um, and this affects, for example, history writing, the writings of Sir Walter Scott, who champions, uh, if you like, groups who were left behind by modernity and enlightenment, talks about uh, the Highland Scots, talks about the American Southerners, uh, as having a culture that's worthwhile, that is in some way, um, even though it's not based on the Enlightenment, it might be based on the older values, the aristocratic or agricultural values, but those are something that is championed by romantics and romanticism. And so these ideas then are, are diffuse around Europe, and they become very influential in Germany uh, amongst uh, a set of intellectuals known as the German romantics. Um, but they're also influential in France, and we can see that affecting the nature of French nationalism. This painting, Liberty, Guiding the People by Delacroix, is clearly influenced by romantic uh, aesthetics rather than by enlightenment aesthetics. So it's not just the German and other European peoples that are influenced by this sensibility of romanticism as this reaction to the enlightenment, which is centered in France. But the reaction takes place everywhere, including France. So the response to the enlightenment, it's a upgrading then of the role of the emotions. Uh, now in Germany, it's very important because at this time the, uh, the French then try to export the revolution to other parts of Europe and we, we see an invasion of what is now Germany by French armies and, and uh, an occupation. Now Germany at this time is broken up into a number of competing states, so it's not united and they see themselves under uh, French occupation. Now, the response to this is a nationalistic one, but it's because this is occurring in the early 19th century, that nationalism takes on a romantic form. So instead of justifying nationalism on the basis of the Enlightenment and values of liberty, equality, fraternity, which were central to the French Revolution, uh, the German form of nationalism is influenced more by ideas of romanticism. So ideas of spirituality, mysticism, authenticity, emotion, nature, rather than uh, rationality, and liberty, etc. A number of thinkers are quite important uh, in German Romanticism when it comes to uh, German Romantic nationalism. These are Johann Gottfried von Herder, Johann Gottlieb, uh, God, er, Jakob Fichte, I think it's Gottlieb Fichte, and uh, Friedrich Hegel. So Hegel and Herder and Fichte were bringing these ideas of romanticism into uh, nationalism. 
And for von Herder, he had a theory that each uh, ethnic people, each ethnic group, if you like, um, had its own genius and uniqueness and its own unique language, uh, and that that was the source of its uniqueness. And basically, if you were not a member of this ethnic group or that ethnic group, you couldn't really understand its view of the world. Uh, and the, the, the language that each group spoke was, in, in a sense, primordial, and it affected the way people thought. Uh, and the, so each, for Herder, each people had its own genius and really uh, had a right to express that genius should be free. Each people should kind of be free. And the, so he was kind of going against this idea of, of imperialism, the notion that uh, you could have entities like the, uh, the Russian, the Tsarist Empire, the Habsburg, the Ottoman Empire, uh, these empires that ruled over many different peoples. This was, again, starting to look like a bad idea for the German Romantics and Herder. This notion that each that people should be free to express themselves rather than to be ruled over by foreigners, uh, and that actually is very important to the idea of nationalism. This idea that each people should rule itself and not be ruled by foreigners. You can see where that's going to be a big threat to the stability of uh, the major empires of Europe, such as the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russian Empire, which ruled over many different peoples. And you can see how it's linked into separatism and secession. So this new kind of nationalism, whereas the nationalism of the first wave French Revolution was associated with internal reform of states such as uh, Britain, such as Spain and France. So it's simply a matter of reconfiguring the social relationships from one of divine right of kings and an aristocracy to a new social system where you have popular sovereignty, the people rule. Uh, so that's an internal revolution, whereas this next wave is going to involve breaking away from states. So this, we now see the introduction of uh, minority nationalism, breakaway nationalism. A lot of the concepts that we associate today with nationalism, that is the nationalism of minorities. Uh, and one of the things that particularly ethno-symbolist writers stress is that a lot of the secessionist movements that take place in first in Europe but later uh, in Asia and Africa and elsewhere that these movements often begin as cultural mo revival movements uh, particularly uh, yeah so cultural revival movements and we start to see a growing number of these cultural revivals in Europe in the early 19th century influenced by romanticism and so what these cultural revival movements are doing is they are, as we'll see in the next slide, they're really about trying to discover what is the authentic essence of us, the Hungarian, the uh, Estonian, the Czech, whatever, Irish. What is our, our essence? Because in a lot of cases, these groups didn't have a high written language. Uh, by the way, if, if people move in just to make room for Anyone? Could people just move down the road? Uh, and a lot of modernists will say that these cultural revivals, such as the Gaelic revival in Ireland in the, the mid-19th century, the revival of the Gaelic language, uh, will say that these are not, this is not nationalism. Hobsbawm will say, well, these are some revivals. In some cases, it was foreigners like Wordsworth who happened to be very interested in the culture of these forgotten peoples. Uh, it was just a, a romantic vogue. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with 
the political nationalisms which emerge later, whereas the ethno-symbolists will say, actually, you can trace a lineage from cultural revival to subsequent political nationalism. And there's a link between these. And that not only that, but these cultural revivals should be seen as a form of nationalism. Now, this is these cultural revivals did take place even in major uh, metropoles such as Britain or France. So you did get the revival, for example, uh, you know, in England, Anglo-Saxonism, the revival of Anglo-Saxon uh, culture, language, and traditions. That did occur in English literature. It in France, you had a lot of emphasis upon the Gauls as, a, as an ancestor for the French people. So there were these cultural revivals also in the major powers, but in particular, they were important in peripheral regions in Europe and subsequently in Asia and beyond. Um, but before we get into that, we have to now look at the sensibility of stateless or occupied societies as distinct from societies that had their own state. So this, the contrast here is France, Britain. And this uh, picture here comes from a, a very interesting museum exhibit in uh, Paris that I happened to attend. And it was contrasting French and German uh, art in the Romantic period and how this was influenced by the nationalism of the two countries. So the French nationalism then had that solid basis in the state, whereas in the case of Germany, you didn't have a state. You just had a bunch of different principalities and competing states. So what are you going to base a German nationalism on? You can't base it on the state because you don't have a state. So what's going to unite a population? If you don't have political institutions, you have to look to something else. So in this case, it's culture and history rather than political institution. And once it becomes about culture and history, you can argue that the nature, and the nature of the nationalism is going to be quite different. The nationalism might be what we would call more of an ethnic nationalism rather than more of a state or civic type of nationalism. So societies where you don't have a state, you can't necessarily build the nation from the state down. So state nationalism is more difficult. So what you instead tend to get are ethnic nationalisms, nationalisms that use as their glue this idea that we share a common culture. And associated with that, some romantic notions uh, from that for the early 19th century such as the idea that we share a mystical, spiritual connection, which may be tied to shared ancestry, uh, shared traditions. So it's a cultural and ethnic nationalism rather than a state nationalism. This was important in the German case. So to unite Germany, then, there's an emphasis on language and what's known this term Volk, or which uh, has a rough translation as folk. Uh, and it's an emphasis upon shared familial mystical ties. And so it's going to take a different form. In addition, uh, so the, and this German romantic nationalism, romantic nationalism is also very influential in Eastern Europe, um, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, and this energizes a lot of nationalisms within the Ottoman Empire, and they, such as the, uh, the Greek and the Serb and the Bulgarian, or within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, Slovak, uh, Czech, Hungarian. Alongside, Leah Greenfeld makes this point about what she calls 
the transvaluation of values. This is a point that emerges through Romanticism. And so the Romantic movement was a reaction against the Enlightenment, against Enlightenment reason. And what the Romantic movement tries to, to do, and the way it's interpreted by nationalists, is to say, well, okay, from the perspective of high civilization, peasant cultures that don't have a written language are seen as backward, rustic, uh, and they should become more like the French, that is, cultured, civilized, rational. Uh, what a lot of the Romantic intellectuals, particularly the German Romantics, do is say, well, okay, we're not as... as, as uh, urbanized as the French. We probably don't have the same level um, of, of rational learning as the French, but what we do have is peasant authenticity and spirituality. We're more uncorrupted by uh, modernity than the French. And so they transvalue or they turn the values around. Instead of peasant, peasant being associated with backwardness, it now becomes associated with authenticity and spirituality, something that's not been corrupted. So that is a way of turning around a negative and making it into a positive. Uh, and that's something that occurs in many of the uh, smaller societies of continental Europe. And, and it's also influential, arguably, in the anti-colonial nationalisms. So we're not maybe as economically developed, uh, but we are more spiritual, more authentic in some way, closer to our our mystical roots. Uh, and this feeds then into the debate on ethnic and civic nationalism, which we'll come to next week, and is actually very pertinent even today uh, on the eve of, uh, of a by-election in which uh, you know, the UK Independence Party, which you could argue is an expression of a kind of ethnic nationalism. Um, but this issue of ethnic and civic nationalisms uh, is, I think, a very live one. So for Hans Kohn in, in his book uh, in 1944, what he argues is some nations were founded you know, on the basis of principles of the Enlightenment. Some nations were founded more on the basis of Romanticism. Some nations were founded on this Western model, such as the French model, where they had a secure state and therefore could build the nation from the state on down in other cases, there was no established state prior to the formation of the nation. So the nation had to be formed on cultural, linguistic, ethnic lines. And so Cohen sees this division between what he calls Eastern or ethnic nationalism and Western or more enlightenment stroke civic state type nationalism. So that dichotomy, depending upon how a nation was born, at the time the nation was founded it's, it, to some extent, marks it for life. And, and that's really an area that others have, have criticized. But still, uh, for Cohen, the nations that were founded, for example, Germany, uh, Hungary, Slovakia, so on, these countries, or nations in Eastern Europe, were founded on ethnic principles, whereas <coughs> France, Spain, England, Scotland, for example, founded on the basis of pre-existing institutions and therefore state nations. State nations versus ethnic nations. Uh, and that this is very influential and continues to be influential down to the present day. The nations that were founded on the basis of breakaway romantic principles, uh, the more ethnic nationalisms, that, that that leaves a legacy down to the present. So 
Rogers Brubaker in his book Citizenship and Nationhood in France and Germany was arguing that the way citizenship was allocated in Germany bore the imprint of that earlier ethnic nationalism, that to be a German, uh, at least up until 1999, I think it was, uh, you could come from Eastern Europe. If you had German ancestry, you were accepted as a citizen in Germany. So the basis of uh, citizenship was ethnic. Uh, you could be born in Germany of, say, Turkish parents and not essentially be given German citizenship. Whereas in France, essentially, citizenship was tied to birth in the territory. So for, for Brubaker, he argued that the legacy of the founding of, of France and Germany persists to the present day. Um, now, we'll see next week that this view has been criticized, and, and we can come back to that. But it's just to say that uh, some would argue that the founding moment of the nation period in which a nation was founded, whether it took the, the state form or ethnic form, uh, is very important, even today. Um, and I'm not going to actually get into this a whole argument about ethnic and civic, uh, and whether that model is a good one, which is what we'll be discussing next time. Are there ethnic nations and, and civic nations, or is that, are, are our nations always a mix of the two, uh, which is the argument that many would make. Okay, um, I'm just going to skip this and go on to talk then about the process of cultural revivalism and ethnic nationalism. So this is this is a, a realm of nationalism that ethno symbolists have drawn a lot of attention to, and this is the cultural associations and activities that took root, particularly in the 19th century that did not involve military or political attempts to break away from an empire or to reunite a society. So it wasn't political, it wasn't about power, but it was about reviving, some would say inventing, uh, traditions for a people. So it might be the fact that you know, you're an Estonian. Estonian is not a high written European language, doesn't have a literature, uh, there's no written history of Estonia or the Estonian people. So all of that cultural work needs to be done. Uh, and so romantic intellectuals got involved in this kind of an activity. They would set up associations, uh, the Scottish Highland Games. I mean, if you look on the book, at the book, The Invention of Tradition, they talk about the, the Welsh, Eisteddfodau, uh, I think it's pronounced, but the revival of these bardic traditions, uh, the revival of um, the Scottish Highland Games, the revival, you know, the Gaelic revival in Ireland. A lot of these activities and associations are formed, which become quite popular, an attempt to kind of instill uh, a kind of consciousness, of ethnic consciousness in a population. We are Scots, we are Welsh, this is what it means to be Welsh or Scottish. So there's a lot of ferment, cultural ferment and revival going on. Attached to this were romantic intellectuals who directed their time and energy at developing a story, uh, an ethnic history for our people. So the idea, well, we Estonians, we know that we are descended from this and that kingdom going back into the mists of time because of archaeological evidence that has been unearthed. And here's the archaeological evidence of fragments, and, and we're going to draw 
particular lines back to those civilizations or, or empires or cultures that existed in the past and were descendants of those people. Uh, and this was also occurring, by the way, in the, in the main Western European center. So the Dutch would say, well, we're descended from the ancient Batavians. And the English would say, well, we're, we're linked to the Anglo-Saxons and the French to the Gauls. And so there was a, a vogue for this kind of um, archaeology and historiography, uh, trying to sort of develop a history of a people. And this involved anthropology. It involved going out into the countryside, collecting peasant artwork and traditions, and trying to look for connections. So in the article today on Hungary, uh, there, was, there were attempts at different points amongst Hungarian ethnic revivalists to say, well, actually, we come from the Central Asian steppes. And if you look at uh, our peasant art and the way people speak, you know, you can draw some connections to the East. And we're really an Eastern people. We're not a Western people. Uh, you know, so there is this attempt to kind of construct identity. Uh, philology, which is to do with linguistics and language and creating dictionaries, a language such as Gaelic you know, wasn't spoken regularly. Where it was spoken, they didn't have words for many things. They didn't have anything written down. There were many different dialects. So it's about standardizing, synthesizing from all of these dialects a language, creating a dictionary, inventing new words. All of this cultural work is very important. And for ethno symbolists they see this as a prelude to political nationalism and eventually separatist nationalism. But the first phase is this cultural nationalism. And John Hutchinson writes a lot about cultural nationalism, in particular in Ireland. He has a book uh, which, which is on the reading list and talks a bit about the emergence of cultural nationalism. And it's typically driven by romantic intellectuals. And these are not, uh, these nationalist intellectuals can't be pegged to any particular class. They don't tend to be from the working class, the bourgeoisie, the aristocracy. Rather, they, they, they come from all of those classes, but are typically associated with groups that don't have a fixed class, such as teachers, uh, you know, literary figures, you know, people who, who aren't rooted necessarily in one or other mode of production, if we use a Marxist analysis. So they are detached from uh, those established social roles in a changing order. And that's typically where a lot of these romantic intellectuals come from. For Miroslav Prok, he talks about cultural revivalism and cultural nationalism as phase A, the first phase of nationalism. And that's then followed by phase B, which is where you have the emergence of associations. So it becomes not just a few intellectuals meeting and putting out a a newsletter, but it becomes an association which might hold parades, uh, gymnastics, choral societies, uh, din you know, dining clubs, uh, Highland Games, all of the kind of cultural revival activities, but linked, you know, Czech gymnasts, yes, but, or, you know, Gaelic athletics, yes, but these are all things that are linked to a sense of trying to build a sense of. Um, national identity within a population. So then this cultural phase A gives way to a phase B, which is the associations giving way to a phase C, which is separatism, active military and political separatism. Uh, and so for Harak, as for Hutchinson, as for Anthony Smith, the 
this cultural revivalism and cultural nationalism, which takes place typically in, in empires, in societies where, you know, no, where is Estonia? What is Estonia? It's just part of the Tsarist Empire, for example. It doesn't have its own state. So it has to invent and create a lot of things, maybe by referencing the past and saying, well, we had a state here. Here's the, the records from the chronicle, the Estonian chronicle, which we've dug out of a monastery. Maybe there's some invention and embellishment going on. But still, uh, that is really going to be the basis then of what develops as a nationalist movement, which then seeks to break away from the Russian or the Ottoman Empire. And Anthony Smith makes the argument that all nations require both a sort of political legitimation in terms of the French revolutionary principles of liberty, equality, fraternity, but also a historical and cultural legitimation on the basis of ancient origins. So in a way, there's a, this is where cultural revivalism comes in. It provides that patina of age and of a long history which uh, nations can draw upon. Uh, in addition to the sort of more rational principles of uh, political freedom, which is an enlightenment principle, but in addition to that, the idea of historicism, which is more of a romantic idea. Uh, as I mentioned, ethnic nationalism is more associated with marginalized and minority groups within existing states. Uh, but it's not entirely the case that ethnic nationalism is restricted to minorities who are breaking away or who are under occupation. Uh, ethnic nationalism can also occur amongst uh, majority groups or amongst dominant peoples. And um, you know, we, we can look at England, we can look at France, uh, we can look at the Netherlands and elsewhere. And these currents of of ethnic nationalism sometimes seem to come in. So for example, France around the turn of the 20th century with the Dreyfus Affair, anti-Semitism, more of an emphasis upon uh, the ethnic basis of Frenchness rather than the revolutionary principles of the Enlightenment. That can come in. In England, there have been periods of emphasis upon you know, folk song revival movements, um, Gothicism, Anglo-Saxonism. So again, the, this recourse to a different past it's not necessarily a past of just civilization, rationality, the enlightenment, but also, in some cases, uh, more emotive, more of an emphasis upon uh, ancestors and, and so on. Uh, and so some of the activities that romantic intellectuals were involved in in the 19th century included uh, creating and synthesizing new languages. So these languages were not traditionally written down. Uh, so if your language isn't written down, particularly these newer, relatively peasant-based groups, Slovak, Finnish, Baltic languages such as Estonian, they needed to be codified by intellectuals first before you can even talk about a nationalist movement. Uh, for ethno-symbolists, this phase then is very important, this idea of first defining who are the people. And then you can talk, once you have defined the people, you can then talk about the people should be sovereign. But if, if the Enlightenment principle is the people should be sovereign, it begs the question, who are the people? Which was not at all obvious in many of, of these places in Eastern Europe uh, in particular. And so synthesizing a new language, history, determining where the rough borders are of the homeland that you want to then 
uh, make independent is very important. So the romantic intellectuals have a very large influence, including artists. Uh, and very often, these artists are and, and intellectuals are quote unquote rediscovering their histories. And now, from a modernist, modernist perspective, they would see this as purely invented. And in many cases, there is a lot of emphasis or a lot of evidence on fabrication of these histories and spurious links to past uh, states and civilizations. In other cases, uh, it's not so clear. And Jop Learson, for example, talks a lot about how monasteries, which were places where a lot of medieval manuscripts were kept, were kind of opened up and broken up at this time. And so their libraries became open to the public and to scholars, to secular scholars. And actually, this does provide a source of new chronicles and information that was not read, as readily available prior to the, uh, the late 18th, early 19th century. So you get a combination of rediscovery and invention. Uh, and notice that difference because the modernists would place a lot more emphasis on invention the ethnosymbolists on rediscovery and revival uh, of the past. So that's an important distinction. But between rediscovery and invention, of there is a search for the authentic past of a people and the authentic culture of a people. The, what is the folk culture? What is truly us? Who are we? Uh, well, let's look at the chronicles. Let's look at the folk songs and, and, and what the peasants are singing about and writing about and, and how they speak, and let's try and synthesize a, a sense of identity from that. And that's what's going on in the early 19th century. Now, it's pointed out, importantly, by Hobsbawm and by modernists that uh, some of this activity was carried out by foreigners, by you know, Wordsworth traveling in Europe, and by Finnish, uh, sorry, by uh, Swedish intellectuals in Finland, for example, who were talking about uh, Finnish folk tales, the Kalevala, and, and, and who, who wrote about these uh, romantically. So it wasn't just insiders who were na being nationalistic about this, but also interested foreigners who were just happened to be romantic intellectuals. And this is where I think the modernists would claim, well, a lot of this cultural revival activity was just happened to be the pastime of romantic intellectuals wherever they were from. It wasn't necessarily tied to this quest for the authenticity of you know, who are we, that sort of, uh, the, the who are we question was not uppermost in the mind of all cultural revivalists. Whereas the ethnosymbolists would say, actually, in most cases, it was insiders who were involved in these activities uh, and who very quickly became attracted to them. And so that actually this was a very strong motivation uh, for cultural nationalism. And in many cases, um, these cultural nationalists, these romantic intellectuals go on to be important in political nationalism. So you see a connection between the cultural and the political nationalism. Just a word on the which parts of the social structure the cultural nationalist intellectuals come from. It's emphasized again in the uh, particularly in Hobsbawm and the neo-Marxist strands of the literature, the emphasis is very much on the bourgeois, bourgeoisie. Uh, in some other modernist literature, it's more on state elites. What a lot of the literature, however, on cultural nationalism shows is that these intellectuals did not emerge from any particular strata. They weren't necessarily state elites, bourgeoisie workers, or peasants. 
Uh, it depends on the case. Um, educated intellectuals were important in all cases, but the key strata in nationalist movements differed depending on the case. So in places such as the Czech lands, where you had it developed already in the 19th century, you had industry. Uh, there, you had more figures from the bourgeoisie who were important in the nationalist movement. In Hungary, in Poland, where you didn't have much developed industry, the nationalism seems to have been rooted more in the aristocracy. Uh, in other societies, Turkey, it was the bureau bureaucracy uh, from which you know, the young Turks, this is where uh, the Turkish nationalism emerges from. And in yet other cases, such as Serbia, it seems as though this was genuinely a, a sort of peasant, rich peasants that were driving the nationalist movement. So it's very difficult, and this is all from Peter Sugar's work, very difficult then to pin down nationalism to a particular economic strata. It seems to elude that. Uh, so that's just simply worth noting. Okay. Uh, for Ernest Gellner, it's very important to consider the modernist argument about ethnic nationalism. So with ethnic nationalism, and particularly separatist minority nationalism, as opposed to the French state nationalism. So when it comes to breakaway nationalism, modernists such as Gellner would argue that status considerations were very important, power considerations very important. So for Gellner, uh, administrators from the provinces, state functionaries from the provinces who, let's say the Austro-Hungarian Empire, just to take a, a paradigm case. So coming from the Czech lands or coming from what is now Croatia uh, to make a career in Vienna in the uh, Austro-Hungarian administration, you might experience some discrimination. A quicker route to power, to securing a power base, might be to start your own nationalist movement, to make a power grab in the territory from which you're from. So for Gellner, this idea of blocked mobility in the elite levels of the civil service, in the empire, for people from the provinces, was a motivation for them then to consider breaking away or to, to, to start a breakaway nationalist movement in the periphery. So that, as you can see, is based on instrumental self-interest considerations of power and status and prestige. It's not based upon a quest, a romantic quest for authenticity, a yearning for some kind of who are, you know, identity existential questions of who are we. This is much more about raw power and prestige. So this would be the modernist repost to some extent would be that uh, people whose ambitions had been frustrated in the centers of empire come back to their homelands to start a nationalist movement. They make use of such things as cultural revival movements where it suits their purposes, uh, but this isn't the major motivation. Just to take an example, uh, uh, in one case of romantic nationalism, and that the example I'm using here is Ludovic Stur, the Slovak uh, nationalist who lived uh, in the first half of the 19th century, and this is the kind of trajectory of some of these nationalist intellectuals, begins as a member of the Czech and Slav Society uh, in Bratislava in 1829, studies in Germany with Hegel and is influenced by his ideas. Um, 
or sorry, is influenced by the ideas of Hegel while studying in Germany in 1838, and then writes, is involved in the construction of a Slovak language dictionary in 1845, and a history, Old and New Age of Slovaks in 1842. And then finally, in 1842 and 1845, petitions to the Austro-Hungarian parliament. And now we see political activity linked to the Slovak cause. Now, for a modernist, they, for an ethnosymbolist, they'd say, well, here we have clear connections between a romantic intellectual and studying in Germany, influenced by romantic ideas, involved in cultural nationalism, creating a, a written dictionary, written history for a people that didn't really have that and arguably did not exist in many ways. Uh, so having to construct this. Um, for a modernist, however, they would say, well, you know, first it's Czech and Slav society, something pretty vague. Only later does it become Slovak. So maybe this idea of Slovak happens when Czech and Slav fails and so then, and it's true that a lot of these intellectuals were attracted to movements like pan-Slavism and then they shift and then they go into other directions. So there is fluidity around what is, is ultimately going to be the form that this takes. But so, so there is certainly a debate to be had over uh, the, the <coughs> degree to which the pre-modern past influences modern na nationalism. Um, but this is just to say, this is the kind of trajectory uh, that we see in the 19th century, the influence of those German romantic ideas and um, the rise of cultural nationalism, what Kroc refers to as phases A and B, which is then a prelude to political nationalism. Uh, so getting back then to our sort of master frame of modernism and ethnosymbolism, what are some of the controversies over the rise of ethnic nationalism? <coughs> From an ethnosymbolist perspective, a lot of the evidence of ethnic nationalism seems to confirm the, the ethnosymbolist perspective. That is, here we have movements whose concerns were initially entirely cultural, uh, who didn't have institutions, so there were no institutions involved to build the nation. The nation seems to have been built from the bottom up on the basis of culture and a pre-modern past. Uh, for modernists, however, they would say, well, that's all well and good, but actually a lot of the, uh, we really didn't see a lot of political nationalists, a lot of petitioning for secession until 1900, that even in 1870, uh, the landscape was quite quiet. Now, it's not entirely true. You had the Serbian and Greek uh, independence movements from the Ottoman Empire. So you did, you did have some movements that were successful in breaking away, but then you had a quiet period. Uh, now, there was the 1848 springtime of peoples, which did involve attempts, some political attempts. But by 1870, this was quite quiet, and Hobsbawm is correct to point to that. So his argument is that it's only later that we see the real emergence of these political nationalisms. Uh, and therefore, all of this ethnic revivalist activity really didn't matter very much. Uh, moreover, if you come to more recent writers such as uh, Brubaker, uh, for example, in his book Nationalism Reframed, he would argue that it was the provincial dividing lines within the Austro-Hungarian Empire whose origin was somewhat arbitrary, just as the dividing lines in the Soviet republics were somewhat arbitrary, that those then offer uh, a launch pad to power-hungry nationalists. Who, so they then have a, a platform from which to launch a nationalist movement. 
So you can see that what comes first are those dividing lines and the structure of, let's say, the republic system in the USSR or the provinces of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that those provinces are administrative creations and constructions. Uh, and so this is more of an institutionalist explanation than for why we then see breakaway nationalisms. It's elites seeking power, status, and prestige, or wealth, uh, using these structures as power bases from which to launch breakaway movements. So that's kind of more of the modernist explanation for breakaway nationalisms, as distinct from the ethno-symbolist explanation, which is that you had these empires ruling over many peoples who had some sense of themselves, which was developed by these romantic intellectuals and then forms subsequently, first the cultural nationalism, then forms the basis for political separatism. Uh, Ethnosymbolists would also point less to power-seeking uh, civil servants and, and uh, politically motivated uh, intelligentsia and more to uh, romantic intellectuals whose motivations were not necessarily self-interested, were not necessarily driven by the hunger for power, but rather more driven by uh, this quest for identity and authenticity. So that's a different source of motivation. It's more of a cultural motivation, less of a political and economic motivation uh, for nationalism. So that's, again, an important difference in the two theories. Uh, so what are some of the legacies, then, of ethnic nationalism? Well, one is an influence on the inter international system in terms of the formation of new states. So once you start to have separatist nationalism, you get the emergence of more and more states. You know, Greece and Serbia in the 1820s emerge out of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, German unification, Italian unification. So ethnic nationalism leads to a step change increase in the number of states. And then after World War I, of course, uh, with the idea of the self-determination of peoples, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian, the Ottoman Empire, again, another <coughs> wave of new states. So every time there's a breakup of empire, you get a new wave of state creation. Uh, often, not always on the basis, again, of ethnic nationalism. And here's a debate, too, whereas modernists would point to the fact that it's realpolitik uh, and jockeying amongst the great powers that really determines who gets their freedom, where the borders are. Uh, so Hungary, uh, after World War I, loses two-thirds of its territory because they were on the losing side. Romania wins, so they gain territory. So this is all based on power considerations rather than on self-determination considerations. But at the same time, one can recognize that there were attempts, in some cases, to run plebiscites to determine these boundaries. So there are, some would say, there was an influence from and the petitioning of these nationalist intellectuals. So there was some influence of ethnic nationalism. Uh, there are a few other things to talk about that flow from ethnic nationalism. One is how scientific racism, which emerges in the late 19th century, again, an intellectual movement, grasps ideas onto ethnic nationalism. So instead of talking about the folk cultural genius of a people, spirituality, and ancestry, there's an attempt to pin ancestry down to, to genes and race and heredity. So that's sort of a, there is somewhat of a, you know, there is a tenuous connection, but there is a connection between ethnic nationalism and the influence of scientific racism in the late 
19th century. One, I think the way I would formulate that relationship is that scientific racism uh, adds a new layer onto ethnic nationalism, and so that then gets absorbed into ethnic nationalism. There's a shift uh, from the emphasis on language, which was, which was more central to ethnic nationalism and romanticism, towards race and heredity and genes, which comes in with, um, with scientific racism. And then, just, just to say, we then, as we expand, I've just got some quotes here from the RSS, a Hindu nationalist movement, which was influenced by uh, many of these same ideas, these German romantic ideas, ideas of ethnic nationalism, uh, and talking here essentially that change of faith, i.e. Muslims in India are essentially racially, ethnically the same as the Hindu. I mean, this is part of the way the national identity is being defined by the RSS, which is linked to the Hindu nationalist BJP party. So ethnic nationalism is influential not only in, uh, in Europe, but also uh, in Asia, starting really in the 19th century. And in fact, uh, Indian intellectuals would have, many of them would have read the German romantics as well. So there's an influence there uh, uh, going outside Europe. Arianism, the, the ideas of Arianism were influential in India as well. Um, and so this kind of gets us back to questions that we're going to address next week about waves of ethnic nationalism so that a particular nation can tilt in a more ethnic direction, can look to its mystical, ancestral, agrarian past as opposed to its more sort of enlightenment, future-oriented projects and, and state institutions. So, Individual nations can tilt in different directions, can look to different pasts, different episodes in their history, uh, and that will influence the way the national identity evolves. So in Russia, for example, right now, there seems to be an emphasis on non-European, or at the very least, non-Western traditions. So Russia is looking more to the East, to their Orthodox and Steppe origins, rather than to the West. Uh, and that's been symbolized in Russia by the city of St. Petersburg, which is more of a Western, associated with Catherine the Great, Western history of Russia, and Moscow and points east, which are more associated with that Orthodox Byzantium type of history and, and steppe history, which is more linked to uh, non-Western traditions. And that, of course, is political in some ways. Putin is trying to draw a line to say, well, we're not the same as Western Europe. Russia is unique, different from Western Europe. Similar debate is happening in Turkey. Uh, Turkey has oscillated between the traditions of Ataturk, which is more Western, European, uh, or is, is it the Muslim uh, tradition which ties Turkey more to the East, which seems to be right now in the ascendant. So that's just to say that these different modes can take place within a single nation. It can look to different paths. If you like, it's often I mean, at least if we're talking about Russia, the Eastern is linked more to the romantic, the affective, the emotional, the mystical. The Western more linked to you know, rational, forward-looking development, economic development, wealth, and so on, uh, in, the, in the Russian case. But also, in, in, many, in many ways, also true of Turkey as well. Uh, is it going to go for modernization, Kemal Ataturk's vision of Turkey, or is it going to go more for um, an Eastern vision 
of Turkey, which connects it to uh, Muslim traditions. It's not quite so simple. Uh, I mean, there are other strands which we can get into if we want to talk about Turkish nationalism. But just to say there are these different paths that countries can look towards. Um, and similarly in the West, I mean, you know, and, and we'll talk about that next week. It's interesting in the context of UKIP to say, you know, what defines Englishness? Is it uh, civic traditions or is it ancestry, culture, ethnic traditions? 